This episode brought to you by Audible, and today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash richtakeonsports. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome, Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted, built, and inspired by the role of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richard Weaver. This is episode 57. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever format that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. In the world of sports today, one thing that has become the norm is analytics. As we're always trying to dive deeper and deeper into any type of numbers, percentages, ratios, whatever it might be, with some hope of understanding any type of edge that will allow us to push the limits of the human body with the ultimate goal of performing better. Our guest this episode, John Brinkus, just might be the godfather of this entire movement as he's the six-time Emmy award-winning creator, director, producer, and host of Sports Science. Now, his reach goes far beyond that, though, as he's also a New York Times best-selling author, a musician, a motivational speaker, and now host of his own podcast with his wife, Lizzie, Brink of Midnight, highlighting the stories of luminaries from all walks of life and exploring those defining moments where their life was changed. And now, episode 57 with John Brinkus. Well, John, I love when things come together last minute. I appreciate your flexibility and right. meeting here in Atlanta. I know it kind of came together all of a sudden, and I'm sitting here with the sports science guy. We were texting back and forth for a while, and I texted you this morning, like, hey, can you meet me in like an hour? And I was like, uh-oh, I got to change some things. Exactly. And so I definitely appreciate your flexibility and being able to meet and talk about the impact of sports in your life. And sure. obviously, as I mentioned, you're the sports science guy. So how often is it when you're out in the public, that's all you hear people yelling, hey, sports science guy? I, I have been very blessed. Sports science had a tremendous run. You know, it went 11 years, 1,800 segments, six Emmys. Um, we, it, it, people don't even really remember that back in 2006 when we uh, were starting the show and selling it, sports science wasn't really a term. It really wasn't. Yeah, you created something. It, it's like we made a little dent in the sports universe, which is, you know, we feel incredibly, I'm incredibly grateful for I had no idea, obviously, when we started the journey as to what it would become, but I knew there was something there. Um, it was a, it, it's, been, it's been a real, it was a real honor to be involved with it for as long as it, as, uh, it ran. And it does happen often, you know, of being recognized and, you know, especially among, you know, the, the male population who are fanatic sports fans. It was, it, you know, it was hard to escape it for 11 years, so... It uh, it happens uh, it happens a lot, and I'm just incredibly incredibly grateful. And what was it that feeling though that you had this gut feeling that this thing would work? So we had done two other programs prior to Sports Science. We our production company that um, I owned with my brother-in-law. 
We specialized in sport TV and science TV. We had the opportunity to do a show at the Discovery Channel that was called XMA, Extreme Martial Arts. And it was the basic biomechanical look at martial arts, but it wasn't deep science. National Geographic came along and said, we want to do something just like XMA, but science it up. You know, make it more sciencey. So we created a show called Fight Science. Fight Science had the world's greatest martial artists come into a lab, punch and kick the crap out of a crash test dummy to see which style generated the most amount of force. That was top 10 of all time uh, for Geo, for programming. And Fox owned National Geographic and owned Fox Sports. They decided to run Fight Science on Fox Sports, the op opposite, the original Peyton Manning versus Eli Manning Sunday Night Football game. It was like their third highest rated show of the year. They said, what else do you have? I'm like, well, we have, we're going to take that fight science idea and apply it to all sports, and we're calling it sports science. And really, it was kind of a crazy idea because I said, we're going to build the world's greatest laboratory, invite the world's greatest athletes, and put them to the test. And everyone said, you're going to have to pay them a fortune. I said, I think people who are great don't do it for the money. They do it because they want to learn something and perhaps get better. That's You're throwing out a challenge to someone who has made a career out of overcoming challenges. And I think people will step up. So we did, you know, as I said, it was an 11 year run, 1800 segments. We never paid a single athlete. To These come are in. the ultimate competitors. Yeah. So of course they would want to be in that arena, basically. And it, what's interesting is in, you know, seasons one and two, when nobody knew really what it was, we were, we got Larry Fitzgerald and Ray Lewis and Drew Brees and Ben Roethlisberger and like huge A-list stars. And it wasn't even a show that anybody really knew about, but it was the challenge that was put out there. Um, so I, I, I was incredibly grateful that, you know, it, it worked out the way it did. And how did sports become intertwined in your childhood and your earliest memories? I grew up in the D.C. area. I was born in D.C. proper and uh, grew up right outside the city in Vienna, Virginia. So I was born in 1971 had three Super Bowls with the Redskins and the Hogs, had an NBA championship with the Washington Bullets beating the uh, Seattle Supersonics, had a uh, World Series with Cal Ripken's rookie year with the Baltimore Orioles that Washington didn't have a team back then. And so I was a giant sports fan. And I was a very athletic kid early on. Uh, you know, I played football, basketball, baseball, ran track, and I was athletic and I was good on a local level, you know, kind of on the all-star team and baseball. But then when, you know, you enter, you're entering high school at four foot eight, 86 pounds <laughs> and you're, you know, even if you went through a massive growth spurt, I mean, I grew a foot in high school. I'm five, eight and a half and I stopped growing. Like I'm, I was the, always the smallest person. I developed a fascination of sport early on as to why are some people just, they're going to be better than me no matter what. It wasn't me um, sort of dismissing my abilities. It was me being realistic and saying, I'm not, I'm not going to be the slam dunk dunk champion in basketball, no matter what I do. And as you know, what's important is I always tell people, people say you can do anything you want. 
And I say, I understand what you mean by that, that expression, but really what you mean to say is you can do anything you can. I mean, I'm, no matter how badly I wanted it at 5'8", you know, a buck 50 in high school soaking wet, I'm never playing offensive line at a D1 college. That's it's right. just never going to happen because I can't. I'm not, I'm just not big enough. So the, you can do anything you want. I like to steer it to, you can do anything you can. I can be president. That's possible, right? I can't play in the NFL. So no matter, no matter how badly I want it. Of course. With that aspect of knowing that, you know, you're a big, huge sports fan, maybe not the elite athlete, but definitely not the elite. Not the, <laughs> <laughs> There's not a maybe not. But you did play definitely. sports, though, yeah. growing up, though. Sure. So what sports did you gravitate towards the most actually playing? Baseball was my main sport growing up. I played a lot of baseball. And, you know, I was a good little baseball player for Vienna, Virginia. <laughs> you know, I was, you know, I was, I was good, but, um, I certainly wasn't good enough to play at the collegiate level or, you know, even, you know, in, then the, the people from my town who, um, were really, really, really good. Vienna, Virginia is a very strange place because there are a lot of uh, just amazing athletes, but I, I'm not sure we've ever produced an NFL player. I'm not sure we've produced an NBA player. I mean, in just in Vienna. Grant Hill lived in the next town over uh, in Reston. So Grant Hill came out and, and several players came out of there. But our high school, which was James Madison High School in Vienna, Virginia, I, it's not known for cranking out a ton of professional athletes. Um, and what's interesting is how the guys who were better than I was when, when I was young, that you're looking up to like, oh, man, those guys are amazing. You know, they got a sniff at the pro level and didn't even come close. And when you're the all-star of all-stars from a small town, and then you get to go to, uh, you know, a camp at, you know, the major league level, and you're not even close. There are two things. One, you weren't nearly as good as you thought you were. And two, there's a lot of peace of mind that, you know, I, okay, I was good for Vienna, Virginia. That was, that, that's great. So I was, I was good, not excellent. Um, anything athletic, but it played a huge role in my life because it, you you have to have focus and discipline and teamwork and there's so many just life lessons um, wrapped up in the sport. My identity was never as an athlete. My identity was you know as a you know I was a human being and athletics was part of my life. Um, I think as as people are genuinely elite especially in this day and age, I think you identify yourself more as an athlete, right? Like I am a basketball player who will probably get a sniff at the NBA. Like you, you, you identify with it more. I was always on the side of, I knew I was obviously never even close, but yet I, I played as much as I possibly could because there's so much satisfaction that you get out of pushing yourself to your own individual limit. And speaking of pushing yourself to your limits, I have heard you talk about you're an endurance athlete, though, and yes. you have done some crazy things yes. from an endurance standpoint. So share how you gravitated towards that and what motivated you to be an endurance athlete. And I know you are. I've heard you say Johnny One Speed. <laughs> <laughs> I am Johnny One Speed. And that, uh, you know, that can work for you or against you. 
I became an endurance athlete uh, because my best friend ran the New York, uh, uh, the Marine Corps Marathon. And he finished the marathon and he called me and he said, oh my God, I finished the marathon. And like any best friend would say, I'm like, weren't there like 25,000 people in that race? <laughs> I mean, it's easy to do. Congratulations. Right? <laughs> so I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do an Ironman. What's an Ironman? I didn't even know. I was like, it just sounds harder than a marathon. So I look it up, and an Ironman is a 2.4-mile open water swim. Problem, I didn't know how to swim. Yeah, that's an issue. That's an issue. 112-mile bike. Problem, I actually didn't own a bike. (laughs) Another issue. It was a 26.2-mile run. Problem, I'd only competed in like a 5K. And I'm like, I'm going to go do that. So... I actually had set a goal while my friend was training training for the marathon. I set a goal to break the five-minute mile. I was 27 years old, and I wanted to break the five-minute mile because I hadn't done it in high school. I I was very close, but I never broke it. And for whatever reason— Did you run cross-country in high school? I did. I ran cross-country, so that was my 5K. And uh, I ran the mile in the 800 in track. I wasn't very good. I never broke five minutes. You know, The guys who were really good just would destroy me. But I never broke that barrier five minutes. And I woke up. I became a meathead. And I was lifting in huge. I was 198 pounds. I was, you know, decline pressing, 330. I was that guy in the gym who was just a meathead. I looked like, you know, my torso was gigantic and my legs were tiny little chicken legs. <laughs> I just, I looked ridiculous. No squats then? Never. I ne- I've never done any exercise with my legs, ever. But I had sure had a big chest. because I, I don't know why we all like the bench press and having a big chest, because it's actually counterproductive to being efficient at sport, right? You don't want to ha- be top-heavy. So anyway, I, when I was 27, I was frustrated because I was really quite strong for my size, and I couldn't run a mile. I couldn't, like, literally run a mile. I couldn't jog a mile. I'd walk up a flight of stairs and be gasping. And I'm like, I am pathetic. And I, on that single day, I woke up and I said, you know what? I'm not going to lift anymore. I'm going to stop lifting and I'm going to break the five minute mile. I called on my old high school track coach and I said, I want to, I want to break the, the, the five minute mile. I weigh 198 now. I lost, I went down to about probably one, I probably went down to about 151. And in what decided, time frame? It, that was, it was only that only much weight. Pretty, pretty short, relatively short. I mean, it was probably three, four months. Yeah, that's I mean, it was very pretty short. Fast. It was pretty fast of like a boom. But it, you're 27, right? I mean, you can gain and lose weight pretty fast. So I was really focused, and I ended up running a 4:55 mile, and I felt really good about doing that. Now I'm in pretty good shape now, probably the best shape of my life. My friend runs the, the marathon, and I'm like, I'm going to do an Ironman. I'm in, I mean, I just broke the five-minute mile. Now, mind you, training to break the mile and training to run a marathon, two totally different things. But I said, I'm just going to go to New Zealand because I signed up for the Lake Taupo Ironman, fly to New Zealand by myself, and I'm like, hey, I'm going to do this. So Now, it, there's Ironman triathlon yeah. in America. Yeah. Why New Zealand though? Johnny one speed. I mean, if you're going to do it, <laughs> if you're going to, if you're going to do an Ironman, why not do it in New Zealand? Oh, well, I guess so. Right? That's the obvious choice. I land in New Zealand and I'm horribly unprepared for this. Mind you, my decision to do it was 
in January. And this race was, I believe it was on the first week of March, like six, eight weeks to like, oh, I'm going to do this. I arrived there and my friend calls me and he said, listen, I know, I know what you're trying to do. Totally, totally get it. But you've never been swimming in open water and you may want to consider trying to swim in open water before you're racing in open water. At least one time. Yeah, at least once. So they had a fun swim, in in quotes, fun swim. That was a two-mile swim in Lake Taupo, open water, and there were only about 100 people there. And I was like, all right, I'll try to swim two miles. I don't know. I start swimming. And remember, I'm just down there alone by myself trying to (laughs) show, show off to my friend. And I'm swimming. I get about 10 minutes out. And I'm not kidding you. The thoughts that raced through my mind were the following. I'm going to die. And this is the worst obituary ever. Man drowns <laughs> trying to outdo his friend because he doesn't really know how to swim. I'm like, I'm an idiot. So I finished that two-mile swim in an hour. And which, which is not a horrible time, but it's, it's a 30-minute mile. You're, it takes me an hour. I finish it. I get out. I'm now petrified. There are, you know, a thousand people, 1,100 people that were in the actual race. I'm like, I'm going to just get crushed. I'm petrified. I don't even know what kind of time I can put up. So I found a, there was a, an Olympian that was doing a, a swim clinic down there. And I just said, just teach me how to swim. And he taught me how to, how to do catch-up swimming, which is making sure you're not dropping your hand beneath. He showed me the form. I just focused on it for, you know, an hour or two. Day of the race comes. So how long of a period was that from your lesson to now the day of the race? It, it, the fun swim was on a Wednesday. The race was on a Saturday. Okay. So wow. I got, got my lesson on a Wednesday. I'm like, <laughs> oh, my God. So Saturday morning comes. I, there are 1,100 people. I get out of the water 100. I'm in the top 10% You're of the entire it. field. I got out of the water at 59 minutes. So I, I, had, I swam nearly an extra half mile in the same amount of time it took me to swim a mile, all because I took a lesson. As it turns out, I'm a decent swimmer. So I ended up finishing that Ironman, and I really felt very, very proud of, I cannot believe I was able to do this. It was unbelievable. I went on, I've done five Ironman triathlons. I did the Leadville 100 mountain bike race. I did a, you know, uh, 12.6 that ended up being like 13 mile open water swim uh, in California. Oh, that just and sounds brutal. It's brutal. That was that was the most brutal thing that that uh, that I've ever. It was ridiculous. But you know, as I went down this endurance path, quite honestly, I I reached the point where I mean, I'm not great at anything. I'm not great athletically at anything. But I I felt like I've proven my point. I'm like I Johnny One Speed has proven his point. I can do, if you want me to swim to Catalina, I'll swim to Catalina. If you want me to, you know, bike 200 miles, I can bike 200. I can do whatever it is that I put my mind to physically that I can do, right? Like, I can do this. Like, I can, could you swim? Could you, you know, swim to Catalina? I know I can say, yeah, I know I can, I could swim to Catalina. But what ended up happening was my body was breaking down because I wasn't training particularly um, methodically, it was very spur of the moment. Sure, I'll try to go I'm do that. I'm going to do this one this week. Yeah, I'll do that. No problem. <laughs> so I would go out and do stuff. My body kind of broke down. So I've, I've at least put a pin in the endurance aspect of my life, 
And now I'm really enjoying, enjoying mountain bike rides, wake surfing, golf, you know, <laughs> it's a lot easier on your body. A lot easier on my body where I'm like, all right, I, I think I can handle this. Um, so I put a little bit of a pin in the endurance uh, events for right now um, for a while just to, I'm letting my body heal. My body feels fantastic. I feel awesome. Do the other things give you the same type of euphoric feeling that you might have gotten out of the endurance? I, you know, wake surfing has become a genuine passion and love. I wish, I really wish I lived on a lake. Because when summer rolls around and it's time to get out on that board, I love it. I, you feel like it's a magic trick. It really is. I did this for the first time last summer. Yeah. And it blew me away. I didn't want to get out of the water. It's the best. When, when, so I grew up water skiing with my friends. The wakeboards didn't even exist. And you know, then, I, then I learned how to wakeboard later in my life. And every time I wrecked on a wakeboard, it was painful. It's a Thing, you know, big board attached to your feet. At least water skis fly off and it would really hurt. Then when wake surfing, you're not strapped into anything. You're going like 10 miles an hour and you're just riding awake. So when you crash, there's very little downside and there's so much joy. It's magical. You, it, it, as you're on that board, you're like, how am I going forward without a tow rope, you know, riding the wave of the wake? It just feels so magical in anything you do. Whether it's a carve, a turn, a 180, or a 360, you're just like, I'm a magician. This is amazing. So it's an incredibly fulfilling recreational activity for me. And I have to imagine, as a the sports science guy, are you in the midst of it thinking in your head, all right, what are the physics behind I, this? And have you even explored that? Because I, I agree, it's amazing. Yeah, I, I really do look at the physics to my own detriment. Okay. <laughs> Because when I, as I'm analyzing it, and I'm like, oh, the center of mass needs to be here, and you need to be lower, and you gotta, you would think that I could execute it better. But there's one thing to know the knowledge, and another thing to actually apply it. This is why. I mean, I love, love golf, and I can analyze golf inside and out. I know the physics of it. I know the the principles. I know what makes makes a more efficient swing. I know it all translating that into physically doing it that's why i'm the sports science guy and not a guest on sports science <laughs> okay yes. so you're not in the midst of the no, lab being I'm, examined yeah no no one's no one wants to to uh but you know put me under the microscope and say god you're amazing that's why we use me as the average joe and people are like you're not the average joe you're not you know you do you do you do iron man events you're exactly. not average but i really honestly feel like i'm a pretty average athlete. I'm, I'm in the grand scheme of human beings. I think I can do what a lot of people can do as well, right? I think there are a lot of people who could do an Ironman. They just don't because they don't want to. They, they are, they are able to do it, but yeah, the but desire is difficult, there. John. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard, but I honestly, it's, that's a, it's more a matter of mental training than physical training. And I don't think people really understand just the mental aspect of what your body is going through and how you're actually yeah. like closing off your mind to think certain things to be able to finish those my, type of in, races. Yeah, in my, in, in my sort of analysis, so I can do anything I want versus I can do anything I can, I, you can finish an Ironman. I mean, I, I, we, I, I've had the great pleasure in one of the charities that I support the most, that, that our family supports, is the Challenged Athletes Foundation. And they um, essentially get prosthetics 
for wounded warriors and, you know, uh, kids who are born without a leg or whatever to, for, for them to compete, many of them at the elite level in Ironman. You're running a marathon. You know, Scout Bassett is uh, part of CAF. Rudy Garcia Tolson's part of CAF. I mean, just amazing human beings. If they can do it, I mean, if, if Rudy, who was the first above the knee double amputee, I mean, he had, he had neither leg from above the knee, right? So if he can finish an Ironman and really focus and really do it, you can do it. Now, with all that being said, I could never win an Ironman. I mean, I couldn't. I couldn't be the first person across the line. You don't think you could train no. properly enough? I I know for an absolute fact it is not in me. I can't. I can't run a mile fast enough to compete, much less twenty six of them. <laughs> I can't bike. I I can't achieve a high enough average uh, average miles per hour in the bike. To even be, to even be within a half hour, I mean, there's just I just can't. I know, I know, I can't do that. But I can finish, and I can do my best. Well, that's still a huge accomplishment Dude. in itself. Now, so speaking of sports science, going back to you know what you've been able to do in the labs, examining these athletes, is there a particular episode or episodes that have been the most riveting for you? I get asked that question a lot, and this is not a cop out answer. But if it, each segment as we went along, we never wanted it to be the same thing. So each segment was sort of that new, fresh, interesting idea that you fell in love with. And then the next one came along and you fell in love with that one and fell in love with that one. So it's very hard to pick one when we have 1,800 to pick from. That I will tell you that the ones that made the biggest impression on me, Ray Lewis uh, made a huge impression on me. I mean, here's a guy who's, you know, Super Bowl MVP, just, you know, just best linebacker of all time, going into the Hall of Fame. The, the guy's amazing. He's become a very close friend uh, of mine, and we have a great charity called Ray of Hope Foundation that you can find at rayofhopefoundation.org. He, Ray Lewis shows up for sports science. I mean, he's with nobody. It's Ray Lewis. It's your Super Bowl MVP, best effect, best linebacker ever, Ray Lewis. And he just shows up by himself like, hey, fellas, want to play some football? What do you want to do? <laughs> and it made such a big impression on me of, wow, this guy's at the top, top, top of his game. And he, he, uh, he uh, visited us um, early in season two. It really set the stage for these elite athletes, you know, men and women. They don't have these giant entourages that people sort of stereotype and say, oh, these guys are so difficult or, you know, they think they're better than everybody else. They work their butts off. And, you know, when I say Drew Brees, just he came with his trainer. He's like, hey, hey fellas, what do you want me to do? You want me to throw some footballs? You know, and you, and you have Ben Roethlisberger. He's like, hey, fellas, I've won a couple of Super Bowls. You know, like, <laughs> like the, you know, people look at athletes and put them up on a pedestal. And I think that it's, it's completely acceptable to put them up on a pedestal as athletes and say, you're a way better athlete. But as a human being, they are just, they're, they're just like you and me. But however, they're excellent at something that's very visible. That's right. That's the difference. That is the difference. Their platform or their stage is yep. very visible. But that's what I have also found out with this podcast that I started that 
you think you know people's stories, but you really don't. And the common thing that I found out is that they're just like us in terms of the ups and downs of life that we all go through. It's just to your point, they just excel at something that America, for whatever reason, just gravitates towards sport, towards sports and puts those athletes up on a pedestal. And and when you put somebody up on that pedestal, there also what goes along with that is a bit of cynicism from the audience. People think, oh, those guys just wake up, roll out of bed, and are better than everybody else. That was true when they were eight, and it might have even been true when they were eighteen. May have ever even been true when they were 21 in college. But the second you hit the professional league in anything, whether it's football, basketball, baseball, whatever, everybody was that kid in that town who was the standout. So there is nobody who's... LeBron James doesn't wake up, roll out of bed, and is better than everybody else. He has to work his butt off to to continue to be at the top of his game. And when people say stuff like that to me, like, oh, that guy's just a freak. I'm like, that, look, we're not talking about high school. We're talking about professional league. The professional level, everybody is that freak from their town. So they work so hard, so diligently, so focused. Now, today, more than ever, I mean, the knowledge that they have, the training tools that they have, the nutrition plans that they have, that athletes didn't have in the past, we are seeing the greatest athletes ever right in front of our eyes and it's only because of the hard work and dedication not you have the raw talent that that provides your foundation but you need that work ethic and focus to really hone it in and those elite of the elites they have that and that's why you see that they can have these long careers Mm -hmm. because of the work behind the scenes that we never get to see uh, from that perspective so i i agree with you a hundred percent what about have you ever thought of monitoring or doing some type of situation where it's live during a sporting event to understand what's happening. Because I've always been amazed by the fact that how sometimes you can be dead tired in an event, especially in like basketball or football. But when a guy touches the ball, all of a sudden, psychologically, they have all this energy all of a sudden, like when they're on offense. Yep. So have you thought about monitoring yeah, during live Absolutely. Events? And we actually have. I've done a lot of stuff. I did done the uh, uh, last two years of the New York Marathon. Um, we've got, you know, had people censored up live in real time and um, getting all kinds of data. So it definitely everything is going to be moving toward it being real time during a game. Um, you see it over in Europe. Um, already happening. It's going to happen here as well. It's going to just be part of the broadcast. You know, what someone's heart rate is, how nervous are they when they're going to kick that winning field goal. That's all going to be part of the storyline. But what's really interesting about, like you said, of someone's just toast. They're done. They're just, you know, completely finished. And yet they dig deep and they find something else. I love to use this analogy. If you remember in Wild World of Sports, you know, the famous shot of, you know, um, you know, it was, it was a female athlete who collapses just before the finish line, you know, and then crawls, crawls her way across the finish line. Everyone's like, oh, my God, that's unbelievable. And you hear all that you see all the time. People cross the finish line of any race and they collapse right at the end, right after the finish line. So let's just use the marathon as an example. So it's 26.2 miles. So if it was 26.21 miles, would you have been able to keep going? Of course. How about 26.3? 
How about Tony 6.4? Of course you could have gone. It, it, there's such a psychological component where if you could run 26.2, you could run 30. I mean, like you can't, where do you say, oh, that's out of my reach? It's very difficult um, to say, well, that distance is out of my reach. I can run 26.2, but I couldn't run how far? I, and really the answer, when you look at ultra marathoning, you know, which is anything above 26.2, you know, there are 50 mile races, 100 mile races, and my wife, Lizzie, um, had, you know, has, has participated and really excelled in endurance events and running events, everything from a 5K to a 100 mile race. She did the Leadville yeah. 100. So she's taken over the endurance uh, side now a, for you guys. Well, she's far and away a superior <laughs> athlete. First of okay. all, she's, she's just has more talent. She's built better than I am. She's, she's just a better athlete um, than I am. She's way faster. Her power to weight ratio is off the charts. Um, but she did the Leadville 100. And it's really interesting. Um, she did it after I did the swim that was like 13 miles. Because really the truth is, I'm like, if I could swim 10 miles... Of course I could swim 13. If I can swim 13, couldn't you swim 20? Of course you can swim 20. I mean, like, of course you can because once you reach those thresholds of, I know mentally I just need to put my head down and keep going forward, you just physically have to have the tools. And a lot of endurance events are rhythmic, right? Like you're not, you're not pegging your heart rate at 180 the whole time. You know, you're sitting in that 110 to 130 zone for a long time, like for lack of a better word, just a steady flow. With that in mind, you you if you ran a marathon, you could run you could run 30 miles, you could run 40 miles. I mean, it's that psychological component um, that prevents people from doing what they actually can do. Yes. Going back to Lizzie now and how she's involved with Brink of Midnight yep. podcast that you started, which I'm a band, huge yep. fan of. Thank and uh, obviously, as you mentioned, you know, the Brink of Midnight band. So was it the band that came first with the Brink of Midnight name and then you just shifted yep. that over to the podcast? So it's a, this is another one of the stories. Our Brink of Midnight podcast is all about the moments in life when everything changes. Because Lizzie and I met on a plane, sat next to each other, fell instantly in love. We, we met in Denver. It turns out we live two blocks away from each other on the same street in Brentwood. So sometimes God, the universe, however you think everything works, sometimes God just throws you a nice, easy pitch to right? Like, here you go. I'm handing it to you. So what was it about Lizzie, though, that instantaneously you were like, that's the one? Uh, everything. I mean, it was, it's, I believe in energy. I believe that we all emanate energy. Every object emanates energy. Every sound emanates energy. Um, and I, I, the analogy I like to use is, you know, if you think about uh, chemistry, the outer ring is always, un, you know, is unstable. So if you have the outer ring of oxygen and it meets up, uh, you know, with high, if you have H2O, you create water. You create something that didn't previously exist. When two people meet, their outer rings are unstable. They come together and they create something that didn't previously exist. That's just the instantaneous. And when you live it, Lizzie and I were love at first proximity. It was just this, she, first of all, was the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen. She, you know, she, her, the, the second I, I saw her, the second we started talking, it just that feeling of, oh, I'm going to marry you. I mean, this is just the perfect match. She actually was holding a book that she bought that was called The Perfect Match. When we <laughs> so Goodness. anyway, so 
the what ended up happening. So that's it, our marriage. To, you know how we met, and it's great. I, Ten years into our marriage, I wanted to pick up guitar again. I played guitar when I was younger, but I put it down. You know, life got in the way. I hadn't played it for twenty years, and I started to pick guitar back up. And I just wanted to write songs. I, I'm a kind of guy of like I don't like to just you know. I don't want to just play covers. I want to write my own stuff. I'm an, an original kind of guy. Johnny One Speed. Johnny One Speed. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's make some cool songs. So I, w- I was just writing songs with just because, literally just because. Taught myself Pro Tools, started recording. I was just making stuff because it was fun. Lizzie comes walking by, starts singing a melody over something that I had written. I'm like, where did that come from? That sounds amazing. And I'm looking at my wife of 10 years. I'm like, and you can really sing. <laughs> She's like, well, I was classically trained in the Long Beach Opera Company. Now, she'd probably told me this 50 times, but it hadn't registered with me in the 10 years of marriage. I'm like, oh my God. So we wrote a Christmas song that was called Christmas is My Favorite Time of Year. I do remember that. And it ended up charting. It was played on Sirius XM Holly, was in heavy rotation, Ended up getting picked up by a bunch of stations nationwide. It was number 30 on the charts. And I'm like, this is crazy. So that was just under the title Lizzie and John Brankus. We then said, well, let's create a band and write a bunch of music. And it's in our, we picked our band name as Brink of Midnight. Because Brink of Midnight is the beginning of one thing, the end of one chapter and the beginning of another. Lizzie it said, look, we need to do more than just be a band. We want it. We should also be putting out a positive message because just like our story where we met in that moment changed everything. Everybody has one of those stories. So, you know, we got, I tapped into our Rolodex that have developed over the years, you know, with Ray Lewis and Larry Fitzgerald and Marshawn Lynch and Damon John and Rob Riggle. And, you know, it goes on and on and on. We have, you know, a really good solid um, list of high profile guests who all have stories of here's the moment that changed my life. Um, so Lizzie really wanted to put out positive energy. Um, and I'm really the guy that's just executing the interviews and going out, but it really is Lizzie's, it's really Lizzie's baby. Yeah. I think from the popularity of Brink of Midnight podcast and Lizzie being involved, I think eventually you're going to just be become known as Lizzie Brinkus's husband <laughs> rather than the sports science guy. Exactly. She, she's the, she is the much better looking, far more athletic, far smarter uh, half for sure. She, she's just better in everything. Now, is there an ultimate guest that you want to have on the podcast that you're trying to get? I think, um, yeah, I mean, I obviously want, we, we want to, you know, shoot for the stars, you know, so the, the highest profile people in the world will, you know, hopefully ultimately, uh, come our way. Um, I feel, I, I feel very blessed. You know, the charity I started with Ray, uh, Lewis is there are people who find themselves in dark spots and difficult positions. And what we want to do is just use our Rolodex because we're one, we're one degree away from pretty much anybody. So if you are find yourself in a dark spot and you need some words of inspiration, we get to that person. We have an all-star list of celebrities that's at rayofhopefoundation.org that you can find. And if, you, if the uh, person that you want to deliver a personalized inspirational message to brighten up someone's day is not on that roster, we'll reach out and use our contacts to go get that person. There are no money, there's no money that exchanges hands. It's just us trying to perpetuate positive energy in the universe. Just yeah, like I, think it's a, I think it's a great foundation, yeah. what the impact that it can have on some of these people. Thank you so for much. For sure. 
Finishing up here, what about some words of wisdom that has meant a lot to you in your life that you would like to share? Um, I, in terms of succeeding, there, there, are, there are several things. One is I did an independent study with Steven, with Steven um, Soderberg uh, when I was at the University of Virginia. I was going to originally drop out. I decided I wanted to go into entertainment. I didn't think UVA had the right stuff for me. But I tracked down Steven Soderbergh, who lived in the, in the Charlottesville area, and he gave me a piece of advice for, in, terms of, in terms of business, and I think this applies for life. He said, listen, don't go to you know, former, formal film school. Don't, don't get sucked into that world. Learn how to do everything yourself. And if you can do everything yourself in whatever it is the job that you want to do, if you can do it all yourself, then you can not only create something on your own, dependent upon nobody, but you also will be able to hire people who you know are better than you because you have a baseline. And that, that idea of learning to do everything yourself inside and out, you know, if you're, uh, I, I love to say, you know, the, the, you know, our contractor who renovated our house, he could build a house by himself from digging up the hole to laying the foundation to putting everything up. He knows how to do everything himself because the, all the other subcontractors that he's hiring, he's, he's got to know whether or not these guys are good or not. He, he knows whether or not that guy can lay tile better than he can. Um, and I think it's a good analogy in, in the film and TV world. I can, I can make anything soup to nuts beginning to end on my own. But I know I'm not the best at every single thing. So you go out and you hire people who are way better than you are. That's your job. And that's really your job in life is to recognize your strengths and recognize your weaknesses, but be able to be self-sufficient. Um, I think that that's, a, that that's a really important lesson for, for lesson people to, to, to realize because I get asked all the time, how did you create sports science? How did you, how did you make the, I want to do what you're doing. And I just tell everybody, I'm like, I created it on my own, out of thin air, and was able to do everything for, you know, from, from the, or, the origin of the idea to the final edit. And I also hosted it in between. So I, I was doing everything, but ultimately we built an incredibly strong team of people who were far better than I was, editors, graphic artists, sound designers, producers, writers, everybody was better than I was at doing that, but I could do it on my own. I had this, I had the skill set. So what's next for sports science? So sports science had an amazing 11 year run. And what I can tell you is that I'm going to significantly raise the bar. Um, we'll be making announcements in a couple weeks, very excited about, um, and I'll, I'll be vague but also uh, keep people in suspense that all I can tell you is raising the bar higher than I've ever raised it. And I'm really excited for the things that are coming. And you, you'll be hearing about it in just a few weeks. Well, if you're involved in raising the bar, I know it's going to be <laughs> raising the bar high, Mr. Johnny One Speed. Right. Thank you so much for sitting down and sharing a little bit more about your background and just the impact of sports in your life. It's been a thrill. I can't thank you enough. What you're doing is awesome. And I think sports plays a huge part in everyone's life, no matter what it is. So go out there and just get at it. While we might not ever truly understand the meaning of fate and destiny, while we're here on earth, I know for sure after listening to John's journey that there are no coincidences in life, as we're all put in certain situations for a reason, as John has been. 
And if you want more proof, then you should definitely listen and subscribe to his and his wife Lizzie's podcast, Brink of Midnight. And of course, stay tuned for the next evolution of sports science. Now that finishes episode 57. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening.